Good morning, Renewal. Good morning. Uh, please keep your Bibles open as we will be referring to uh, this passage throughout uh, our time together this morning. Um, well, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Charles, if you remember, he preached from Acts chapter 8. And that's about the midway mark of that book. Uh, we'll begin with chapter 9 later in the fall, uh, beginning with Paul's conversion and his ministry. But before we do, we thought it'd be appropriate to take some time to think and meditate on how Paul views this gospel message. And what better way than to do that than to study one of his letters, the book of Romans. And so, Lord willing, throughout this spring semester, all throughout the summer, we're going to take our time and meditate and think and study the entire book, all 16 chapters of this book of Romans. Uh, I believe about a year or so ago, we studied the book of Ephesians, and back then I referred to that book, as many people do, as the queen of the epistles. And so if Ephesians is the queen of the epistles, let me ask you, what do you think is the king of the epistles? It's none other than the book of Romans. So you can imagine the amount of sobriety and, and reverence that I have in, in having to preach from one of the most theologically rich and beautiful presentations of the gospel ever written. This king of the apostles, uh, the, uh, the epistles, the book of Romans. It took um, John Piper, a pastor, 18 years of pastoring at his church before he began to preach from this book. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, perhaps the greatest uh, preacher uh, in the English-speaking uh, world of the 20th century, uh, he preached from the book of Romans, and it took him 366 sermons to preach through this whole book. For us, that would be uh, 30 years. Uh, I don't think I have that much time uh, left, uh, but that just shows you just how deep, how, how rich this epistle is. And my hope and my prayer and my challenge is to be able to say that I did not withhold any of these riches of this book from any of you. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that we have to obey our leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls and they will have to give an account to God. And likewise, I will have to give an account to God when I see him face to face with this question, did I do justice? Did I give you all the riches of this book of Romans? Not allowing my own thoughts, my own experiences, or even my personality come and compete with the clarity of these truths. But with the clear presentation of the gospel, that I'll allow the Lord to work this mighty work of salvation in all of us here at Renewal Mainline. And I have full confidence that the Lord will as we take our time to study this word together. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So with that, as we encounter this epistle, this king of the epistles, may we do it with reverence, with sobriety, approaching it as the living word of God. And I have no doubt that for every one of us that God will work, he will show his power in all of us. 
You know, furthermore, throughout the history of the church, uh, this epistle to the Romans, it had a tremendous impact in many of these great figures in the past. In the year 386, one summer day, there was a young man by the name of Augustine. And he was in the garden of one of his friends. And by a tree, he was weeping, frustrated with his life because he was living after one sensuality, after the next, parties, just living for himself, and he knew that it was a dead-end life because every day it didn't provide this satisfaction. So in feeling frustrated and depressed and weeping, he says that he heard a voice, and he writes this account. He says, the tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle in which I was engaged I was twisting and turning in my chains, and suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as it might be a boy or a girl saying and repeating over and over again, tole lege, which is Latin for pick up and read. And so he hurried back into the house, and he picked up the first book that he could see, and he opened it up, and there it was, Romans chapter 13, where it reads, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify gratify its desires. And he writes, at once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart and all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. That was Augustine, probably one of the most influential theologians of all history. A few hundred years after that, a man by the name of Martin Luther, after living this obedient, impeccable life as a monk, still struggled with this idea of being righteous before God because he knew that deep down inside his heart just how ugly he was, the thoughts, the way that he lived his life. One night he picks up the book of Romans and he reads, the righteous shall live by faith. The passage that you and I will study next week. And through Luther and through these words, God sparked the beginning of the Reformation. After Luther, John Bunyan, when he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he was studying the book of Romans. John Wesley, the leader of the Methodist movement in May 1738, exactly at 845, he was studying the book of Romans, and he says that his heart was strangely warmed, and from then on, he trusted in Christ alone for salvation. So it had tremendous impact in these great men and women of God. So don't say I didn't warn you as we study this book. It could perhaps change your life radically to give your life fully on to him. So I encourage all of us, tole lege, pick up and read. Let's embrace this beautiful book together as a church. And let's be prayerful, engage ourselves with our minds and our hearts, with our inner beings to see this power of the gospel. And I have no doubt that as we do, whatever tumult you have, frustrations of life, depression, whatever anxieties you may bring to the table, that they will all shrivel in comparison to the beauty of this gospel. Amen? And let's pray and ask for his help as we study our time together in in God's word. 
Father, we do pray that you may help us. God, if we are honest with ourselves, we want to be passive. We just want to sit. But God, help us and strengthen us to be engaged with all of ourselves to see these truths of the gospel, knowing that it is the very words of God. And may they speak powerfully into our lives. We invite your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, We have three points for today, uh, but I'm not going to list them. In the beginning, we'll do it as we study this passage together. So the first point is the gospel has its origins in God. The gospel has its origins in God. The Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter to the Roman Christians, we have to keep in mind that he never personally met these brothers and sisters. Unlike these other letters that he wrote to the church of Corinth, to the church of Philippi, he had a relationship with them. He started many of these churches. He knew their ins and outs, the problems and issues that they were struggling with. But with the church of Rome, he never met them. He doesn't know the ins and outs of this church. And so this is his first letter to them, introducing himself, getting ready to eventually one day meet them. So keep that in mind as he writes this introduction. And so if I asked you, if you had to write an introduction to someone else, if you were meeting a stranger for the first time, how would you introduce yourself? You know, whenever I meet somebody for the first time, the first thing that I try to do is develop a a common bond, some kind of connection. And then from that, we can develop a deeper conversation. That's why we ask questions like, oh, where are you from? Oh, I know that place. Have you been here? And then from that point on, your relationship deepens. You can ask questions like, are you an Eagles fan? And you say, of course. I didn't doubt Nick Foles for one minute. And then from that point on, they say, me too. And then you develop this connection. And from that point on, you introduce yourself and develop a stronger relationship. So keep that in mind. That's what Paul would be doing here. Something that establishes a connection with these Christians that he never met before. And he could have done so in many ways. He's writing to the Roman Christians. He himself is a Roman citizen. He could have perhaps used that as a way of connecting with them. You, a Roman citizen, me, likewise, a fellow Roman citizen. And he could have introduced himself that way. He could have also talked about his credentials, the way that he was trained and raised up in the ways of of this most respected rabbi, Gamaliel. And he could have impressed them with his background. He could have referred himself as, as, as the author of many of these New Testament writings, as one of the early teachers of the church. He could have used all of these things and pulled them out of his pocket. But in spite of all of that, what is the first way that he introduces himself to these Roman believers? He writes, Paul, a servant. Paul, a servant. In the Greek, Paulus doulas Christos Jesu. Paul, servant, slave of Christ Jesus, because that's what that word means, slave. Slave of Christ Jesus. Back then, you could see that word slave engraved in many of the imperial guards, slave of Caesar. And it shows this utter devotion 
that one may have for his king and for his master. And that's how Paul viewed himself, a slave of Christ Jesus. And it's not the way that you and I might think, thinking about the American past of this enforced slavery. The way that Paul's using slavery here is one who is utterly, utmost devoted to the one he serves. So how does, Paul, how does Paul get to be at this point where he has this utter devotion to Christ Jesus? He continues set apart for the gospel of God. And if you look at verses 2 through 4, he starts to describe this gospel. And he summarizes this gospel as something that happened a long, long time ago, all the way back in the prophets, coming down throughout the times of history through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, down to his individual life. And now consider what he's doing. He's referring himself to as a slave of Christ Jesus. And then he talks about this great, enormous gospel that God had prepared beforehand through the prophets, through the descendant of David. And it comes all the way down to him personally where he can say, I am a servant of Christ you know, if you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, I have a question for you. And if you're not a Christian, consider the fact that God, he placed you here this morning perhaps to be presented with this question. He has orchestrated your life so that you can be brought face to face with what this gospel is. And here's the question. When did God begin the work of the gospel in your life? When was the day, what time of your life do you first, did you first experience God doing something in your heart with this gospel message? If you're not a believer here today, maybe that's what he's been doing recently, sending Christians into your life, perhaps you being here at church. Perhaps God is starting this work of the gospel in you. If you've been a Christian for quite some time, maybe you go back to a day where, where you were really praying and you felt as if God was really present. Maybe it was at a retreat or after a miraculous event. And we can point back to that day and say, from that point on, God began this work of the gospel in my heart. But if you ask the Apostle Paul the same question, when did God begin this work of the gospel for you? You know what he would point back to? Back to eternity. He would say that it was before time even began. It wasn't some years ago when he first encountered Jesus on that road. But God had been preparing this beautiful gospel way before he existed, way before the foundations of the world, and God began the work of the gospel for Paul way before that he even knew God existed, way before he even knew he needed this Savior. And we truly, if we truly understand what this means, it will radically change us so that we ourselves will refer to ourselves as servants and slaves of Christ Jesus. Let's ponder this together. Imagine that you were in maximum security prison. Pastor Dan recently uh, went to Alcatraz, and he was sharing with us some of uh, uh, the, the horror stories. Imagine that you're in this maximum security uh, prison, and there's no way for you to escape on your own. 
But the only way that you can escape that prison is somebody from the outside comes and rescues you. But you know that there's nobody out there that's coming to save you. So day in and day out, you're sitting in your cell in utter despair without any hope, thoughts of depression, thinking about giving up. And say that one day, somebody comes and he rescues you. Through a series of events, he orchestrates something so that you can be saved and you escape this prison. Now, you would say, (coughs) excuse me, you would say from that day on, the day that he saved you, that you would have this utter praise and thanksgiving for this rescuer, wouldn't you? And when asked the question, when was the day that you were rescued? And you would point back to that day where he saved you from that prison. But then... If you talk to your hero more and more, perhaps you find out that his rescue didn't begin the day he rescued you, but from the day that you were in that prison, that he was setting up a plan. He was orchestrating things here and there, putting all the pieces together all throughout your time. When you, in your mind, thinking that all hope was lost, But God was working in the backgrounds all throughout history, all throughout time, so that this gospel could come down and encounter you. And when we think about that, about God's gospel, this eternal gospel that is being prepared, that has been prepared for every one of us, it blows our minds. It makes us say, wow. I'm willing to be a servant for this Christ Jesus. And that's how Paul sees the gospel in verses 2 to 4. It's a gospel that was set apart way before the foundations of the world, before he even knew it. That before time began, that God had you in mind, holy and blameless. That he had already prepared this beautiful plan to bring you into his family and to transform you into perfection. And when we think about the gospel in that way, that the gospel didn't start the day that you started to see God working in you, but it started way before you were even born. It amazes us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. You know the way that God sees you right now? It's not in the arguments that you had this week. It's not in the lack of reverence that you have now. He sees you with a holy and blameless and perfect version of you in mind. Why? Because he planned that before eternity. The gospel that you and I have, he prepared, he orchestrated, and your salvation, your gospel is grounded in something so much bigger than our experiences, so much bigger than whatever we experienced or encountered in the past. It's grounded into his sovereign will, something that he eternally prepared. That's the origin of your gospel. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian and you think about all the ways that God is putting this gospel message in front of your life, think about what he's doing. He's already been pursuing you. And he will continue to chase after you time and time again. 
And it's not dependent on you resisting. It's not dependent on you being annoyed at God because he is so sovereignly, so passionately after you that he will send this brother, he will send this sister, he will use whatever means necessary, the way that he planned it for you to come to say, I'm willing to serve my Christ. There's a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip that I, that I admire, and it's this uh, a scene of Calvin and Hobbes, and they're in this field just staring up at the sky like any two guy friends would do and Hobbes the tiger he asked this question to Calvin Calvin do you think there's a God and the next uh, frame is them staring blankly at one another and, and Calvin says well somebody's out to get me and it goes to show that he knows that even him there is somebody out to get him and for us there is somebody out to get you to pursue you, not because of what you've done, not because of how you're being holy, how you're being obedient, but because way back then, God said, I want you. I want this one. I want to include this person into my family, and he's orchestrating a plan, perhaps through this church, perhaps through a brother or a sister, to say, hey, God has set you apart to know this gospel message That's where the gospel originated for all of us. The second point, the gospel brings with it an obligation. These are ways that Paul sees the gospel. He sees it originating in God, and now he also sees the gospel bringing with it this obligation. So we're going to continue on in our passage. We're now at the third word. (laughs) We began with Paul, a servant, And now he calls himself, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And here we have to understand that to be called, that word calling, is a lot stronger than what you and I think. I think in the modern mind, we see this word calling as as this kind of invitation, something mysterious, as if God has some invitation for us, and we have to hear his faint voice to see, okay, am I called to, to work here? Am I called to major in this field? Am I called to to marry this person? Because I know I'm not called to marry that person. And we take this view of calling as something frivolous, as something that changes with our minds and our wills. But that word calling is so much stronger here. It's so much more sovereign, so much more eternally determined. It's not this frivolous thing. But when Paul says that he was called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel, it's something that God in his power is orchestrating. God in his might has done in his life. And that's the way that you and I need to see the way that God calls us. The same word that Paul writes, God called me to be an apostle in verse 1, is the same word that we see in verse 6 when he says that you and I were called to belong to Jesus Christ. We have to take the same weight, same force, same power of that word called to realize that God has called us to belong to Christ Jesus. But along with that calling, there's an obligation. There is an obligation. Because for Paul, he doesn't see God's calling for him as a Christian separate from his calling as an apostle. Look at verse 5 with me. 
If you look at verse 5, he talks about how it is through Jesus Christ that he was called to have this grace and apostleship. That he has received this grace and apostleship. The grace so that he could be, belong in the family of God and the calling to apostleship to, to serve God's will. And though we see two words there, that's forming to actually convey one idea. Two words to convey one word, one idea. For you grammarians out there, it's what we call a hendiades. A hendiades, when you use two words to convey one idea. A recent example is the word fast and furious. Who do you think of? Van Diesel, right? I can't separate fast from the furious because he's both in one, fast and furious. That's what Paul is doing here. He's not talking about grace and his calling as two separate things, but the grace through which he was called into God's family is also the calling that God has for him to be an apostle, to serve, and to preach this gospel message. So the grace that enabled Paul to see Jesus as his Savior is inseparable from the calling that God has for Paul to serve him, to serve Jesus as king. And likewise, the grace that enabled you to see Jesus as your Lord and Savior is inseparable from the calling that he has on you to serve Jesus as king. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul, when he first encounters Jesus for the first time, he sees this heavenly light, and he hears Jesus' voice. And from that point on, he becomes a genuine believer of Christ. But in the same event, we see that Jesus reveals his calling for Paul. He says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So for Paul, his calling to receive the gospel is never separated from his calling to be an apostle and to preach and to do the will of God. Because way back then, God has set that apart for his life. And so the question is, is that the way that you view your conversion? Perhaps the way that God is expressing and making you encounter this gospel right now. Is your view of the gospel something where you just receive something and you have a free ticket to heaven? And you praise the Lord and you rejoice, and rightfully so. But is that the fullness of the gospel that you have in you? Or are you going to take both words, grace and calling, that the moment that he called you to belong to Jesus Christ, he also called you to do his will and to serve him? The commentator writes, grace is not regarded here or elsewhere as a gift given simply for the recipient's personal and private enjoyment. It is given in accordance to God's will and to further his purposes. And that's why in verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation to preach the gospel. He's under obligation. He's indebted to preach the gospel. And right there, you and I should ask the question, how? I mean, don't we teach at our church that the gospel is a free gift of God? No conditions, no strings attached. 
that it is only through faith. And if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the, that's the only thing required because your faith is built upon Jesus Christ. So how can Paul be under obligation? And I think this illustration helps us understand what Paul means by him being obliged in debt to preach the gospel. I think there's a couple of ways we, we view that word, obligation, to be indebted. The first one is a simple one. For it say that you lend me $100, then I will be indebted to you, right? I'll be under obligation to pay back to you that $100. That's the first way of understanding it. The second way of understanding obligation is, say that you give me $100 and you say, Pastor Luke, can you give this to Joanna? It's not for you. At that point on, I am under obligation to Joanna to give that money, that $100 to my wife. And until the day I do, I am still indebted to her. And that's how Paul's viewing the gospel. That the moment that God gave this grace of the gospel to you, that you were under obligation, not back to him, but under obligation to make sure that this gospel doesn't camp out here, but it goes to someone else in your life. And that's how we see obedience and faith. Jared Wilson says that when we are saved, we're not saved by good works, but for them. And those good works are entailed by your concern to make this gospel message more prevalent in your life and in those around you. Obligation comes with the gospel. If there's a word that I think really encapsulates this idea very well. I think in English, the closest thing to it is the word burden. In Chinese, the word is fudan. In Korean, it's pudam. Where you have this gospel message that it can't just peacefully sit here. It needs to get out. It needs to get out. There's a burden associated with the gospel, not in the fact that you have to pay back God, but that you know that there are people around you who doesn't have this. You know, if you ever talk to someone who recently converted to Christianity, for the first time they believed in the gospel, you know, immediately you're going to see that in their face, the way that they speak, they're going to be so full of praise and joy and thanksgiving. But it's not going to be too long that on their face, you're going to see this deep concern. And you know where that concern comes from? Because immediately in their minds, they're thinking, my father doesn't know this. My mother doesn't know this. My children don't know this. And it doesn't take too long from joy to come to concern because there's an obligation with the gospel Piper says, if you hold this grace back from others as if you are qualified and they are not, you default on your debt to the world and prove that you have not truly known grace. Do you see what he's saying? If you can sit here comfortably with this gospel message and not be concerned with those around you who are destined unless you do something about it, the way that God has orchestrated it, then you are thinking that you are somehow qualified, that it is because of you, that some, for some reason that you deserve this gospel message more than the person next to you. 
but only when you truly understand that it's grace set apart way before the foundation of the world, that you are no better than that person next to you, then you will understand how you are indebted to share this gospel with that person. He says, when it comes to us freely, we are debtors to give freely. That's the obligation that comes with the gospel, and that's how Paul sees it. The third and final way that we are to see this gospel is that it creates in us a concern, a concern to see the obedience of faith in other people. It creates in us a concern to see this obedience of faith in others. If you look at verse 8 onward, Paul's starting to write about how thankful he is for these Roman Christians. And he makes a very bold statement in verse 9. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The way that he sees his calling to the Roman Gentiles is the way that he sees his life. That his life is to bring about in them not only salvation, not only their conversion, but so that they would have a life that is obedient to God, as he writes, an obedience of faith. That's Paul's concern. That's why he's so devoted to his calling. It's not only so that they can say, okay, I believe in Jesus Christ. I have a free ticket to heaven. But the connection that he has with these brothers and sisters that he is dedicated to make sure that out of their lives comes obedience from their faith. You know, once or twice a year, uh, I, I get the privilege of being able to preach at other churches or at a conference or a retreat, and I'm thankful uh, for those opportunities because, you know, ministering to other people really refreshes my heart for our church. And recently, I went to a speaking engagement, and by God's grace, sometimes I get to hear about somebody uh, coming to accept Jesus Christ for the first time. A few days ago, a pastor friend of mine texted me saying, thank you uh, for sharing God's word. This brother uh, became a believer. And as I read that text, obviously I'd be ecstatic. I'd be praising the Lord. God, thank you for doing this work of the gospel in this brother's heart. But then immediately this question just loomed in my heart. This question was, is that, is that all it's about? Is this what it's about, just the news of people accepting the gospel? And in my annoyance, I said, of course, this is what it's about, so that people come to know Jesus Christ, right? Isn't this what we're here to do? And immediately, this question loomed in my heart. What about bringing about an obedience of faith to those people? It's not just about their conversion. It's not just about for them to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but it's actually being with them and staying with them and caring about them so that out of their faith comes this obedience 
And I believe it was God reminding me that the news of someone's conversion isn't the goal. It's not the news of faith in others. It's not less than that, but it's more. But it's ensuring that a person, even after coming to faith, that he or she lives in obedience according to and stemming from his or her faith in Jesus. And that's Paul's gospel here for the Romans in verse 5. To bring about an obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among the nations. You know, for me, maybe not for others, but for me, it's easier to attend conferences and retreats and preach the gospel for the first time to some of these people. To preach passionately. And by, God, by God's grace, some of them come to faith. But you know what I think the calling here is for you and I? Not only are you willing to share the gospel, but to be with them, to live with them, to care for them when they're struggling and suffering, to cry with them, to weep with them, so that from their faith comes an obedience that says, I love the Lord, I want to serve him, I want to be a doulos of Christ. That's his calling. And I'm convicted time and time after again. Is this the calling that I have for this church? And for you, are you convinced that this is the calling that God has for you, for the people in your life? It's not simply in a one-time fashion to say, here's the love of Christ. I did my part. But to be willing to sacrifice your time and your energy and your blood and sweat and tears to actually be with somebody, to pray with them, to speak truth into them. Perhaps dedicating your time, your weekends, to joining with people from your community group, to actually be being there, to pray for them. That's what obedience of faith is. Brothers and sisters, just because a lot of us can say that we are believers, I know that our job here is not done. Because God wants an obedience that comes from this faith in our lives. And he will not stop pursuing us until that is the result. Our commentator says, we understand the word obedience and faith to be mutually interpreting. Obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. And we are called to a faith that will always be inseparable from obedience. And that's the kind of heart that Paul had for these Roman Christians. And it's the kind of heart that you and I should be challenged with to the people in your lives. To have a kind of desire for these people, a love that is passionately concerned, not so that they know Christ, but that they obey him, that they're changed and transformed. Are you willing to accept that kind of calling for your spouse, for your kids, for your neighbors and coworkers? Do you see them as projects or as people that God passionately concerns for? And that your role, your calling is not just to say, I share the gospel with them, but willing to suffer and to live with them so that out of their lives come an obedience of faith. You can tell that that's the kind of heart that Paul has for these Christians because he's writing this letter to them. And you can just sense in his language, his longing, I long to be with you. I make mention of you every day in my prayers. And you know, Paul, you know where he's writing this letter? 
He's writing this from Corinth. And if you know anything about the letter of you know, Corinthians, there was a lot of issues at that church. There were a lot of divisions. People were following Apollos and Peter and Paul. A man had a relationship with his mother-in-law. There are people being proud because of their spiritual gifts. There are so many relational issues, but still, in the midst of that, he writes this heart-wrenching letter to his fellow Christians saying, I long to be with you. I want to impart some strength to you. I long to see you. That's the kind of heart. And do you have that kind of heart for the people in your life? For your family members, for those that you just happen to randomly pass by, do you have that kind of heart? to bring about in their lives this obedience of faith. But that's the kind of heart that Paul has as he writes this letter, and that's why it's so powerful. It's the heart behind it. Now, why are letters so powerful? Is it because the words that you craft are beautiful, even though that might be the case? You know, my mom, I remember growing up, she would always write letters. Every time we would go to a relative's house and stay there for a long period of time, The day that we left, she would hand everyone in that house a letter, just writing her thoughts, some blessings. And to this day, they always share with me just how impactful those letters are. So why are letters so powerful? Because it shows that daily you are thinking about them, that you are longing for them, that you are mentioning them in your prayers. Husbands, that's a tip that I learned very quickly. If you write a letter, it goes a long way. Not because you write like Shakespeare, but because it shows that you were thinking about her. Charles Simeon says, love naturally affects communion with the object's love. The way Paul writes, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. That's verse 9. Imagine you texting verse 9 to your wife on the way home from work so that I may succeed in finally coming to see you. That kind of heart, do you see it? Paul longs to be with the Roman Christians, and he does get there. At the end of the book of Acts, we see that that's his final destination. He gets to finally see his brothers and Christians in Rome, but the way that he arrives is very different from the way that he expected to. Because the day he set foot into that city, there wasn't much celebration. All these brothers and sisters weren't waiting, celebrating for Paul's arrival. But the day that Paul got there, he was in chains. He was imprisoned near his death. And tradition has it that would be the final city that he lands on before he goes home to his Savior. Can you imagine, after reading this letter, how I long to be with you. And imagine that reconciliation, finally meeting Paul, the one who's been praying for us. But the moment you see him, he is in chains, getting ready to die. Tradition has it, he was beheaded for his faith. Sinclair Ferguson says that this teaches that sometimes gives us, God gives us what we need and ask for, but not always in the way that we want them. God honors Paul's desire to be with the Romans, but not in the way that he expected. Paul, at the end of his life, he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You know who that crown is? It's the people of the Roman church, the people he's ministering to. 
That's his crown. That's what's spurring him on. Can you imagine the tears, the joy, even in light of the chains when they finally get to see one another? That's the kind of heart that you and I must have as we're obliged to share this gospel with the people around us, to bring about an obedience of faith. If you don't have that heart, you will not be able to obey. And Paul, he knows this heart. Why? Because Jesus is the one who had this heart for him. Jesus is the one who longed to be with him. God himself from all eternity longing to be with you so that you and I can experience this gospel love. Because we have a God who longs to be with you, who is passionately pursuing you, and he wrote you a letter. It's called the Bible talking about how he's planning this great plan of redemption so that one day he could be with you for eternity. That he's been orchestrating all the things of your life, all the difficulties, all the confusion, so that one day you come face to face with him and you might still be broken, but there will be joy when you finally see your Savior face to face. And Jesus, he didn't stop with a letter. But he longed to be with you so much that he took it upon himself and he came down to earth. Took upon the chains of human flesh, limiting his glory and his divine nature. Not in a way that limits it, but that way conceals it so that he's fully man, fully God. So that he could be with us. Experiencing the tribulations and sufferings of this world, taking on the chains of sin that you and I brought about. Jesus had an obligation to bring about in us this obedience of faith. And Jesus, the day he was resurrected, it's not as if he stopped his work, that he's with us day in and day out, with you, praying for you, interceding for you every day so that you could have obedience that comes from your faith in him. And his heart, the heart that he had for you, is what enabled him to do so. So brothers and sisters, once you see the love and devotion that Jesus had to not only come and just give you this good news, but actually ensure that you will be changed from it and to live a life obedience that stems from faith, then perhaps you too can have that kind of heart for others. And you can obey with joy. Ferguson says, our sense of obligation is matched with aspiration. Grace changes duties into joys, and we can say, what God wants for me is what I want for him. I pray that's the kind of heart that we have for one another as we enter this year, and that will mark our church. Let's pray.